0: Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join us in the conversation.
1: Welcome back to Conversations for Life. We're so glad that you guys have joined us. Today, we are really honored to have Dr. Diane Langberg. She is a practicing psychologist whose clinical expertise includes 45 years of working with trauma survivors and clergy. She speaks internationally on topics related to trauma, ministry, and the Christian life. She's a clinical uh, faculty at Biblical Theological Seminary, where she co-leads the Global Trauma Recovery Institute with Dr. Phil Monroe. She's the author of many books, including uh, Counsel for Pastors' Wives, Counseling Survivors of Sexual Abuse, and On the Threshold of Hope, Opening the Door to Healing for Survivors of Sexual Abuse, and a book that we are... um, kind of focusing on in this time, Suffering and the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. And Dr. Langberg is a columnist for Christian Counseling Today and contributes to many other publications. She's also the former chair of the executive board of the American Association of Christian Counselors, and she serves on the board of Grace, which is Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. And she is co-chair of American Bible Society's Trauma Advisory Council. So thank you so much, Dr. Langberg. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, so we'll just jump right into some of the questions we'd like to, to ask you. Um, so one of the things you, you say that you've written about is that children are not actually resilient, but rather malleable. So when it comes to childhood abuse and trauma, especially complex trauma, which you described as interpersonal, premeditated chronic planned and caused by humans children are deeply shaped by these experiences and healing takes a lot of work over a long time and given the statistics about childhood abuse and domestic abuse and given that these numbers are um, certainly underreported many people listening to this podcast have experienced trauma or abuse in some way so when we think about our own childhood trauma or if we're raising children who've been traumatized we might wonder why and how did that trauma affect me so powerfully?
0: Well, before I dive in to answer, let me just um, put a couple things in perspective for people who are listening and perhaps haven't read things um, from the book or whatever. One is just the statistics. Uh, in this country, one in four females, one in six males are sexually abused before the age of 18. Mm. Um about 31% of women experience some kind of violence in the home, and in the marriage. And uh, one in five females in this country experience rape. And there's a lot more male rape going on than has been acknowledged before this and is just beginning to come to the light. I don't know the statistics on it. But I do know that boys who have been raped have high instances of drug abuse and attempted suicide and things like that. So Mm. it's still a field where we're learning how much trauma there is and what kinds there are. When I say that children are not actually resilient, um, which is a very common word we use for children actually, but the word means to spring back into shape. So if Mm -hmm. you punch something rubber and it pops back up, that's resilient. Children don't pop back up after abuse. They're malleable, which means they can be shaped like clay. And it also means that they can be pressed um, by something that changes their shape without breaking them. Mm. So you think about doing that with clay. You can alter the shape of the clay, but it still sticks together. That's yes. what abuse does to a child. So it's, it's altered profoundly, but it still sticks together. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we, when we talk about chronic p- trauma or complex trauma in children's lives, we're literally saying that someone who is shapeable is marinating in trauma or evil by no yes. choice of their own. You can't marinate in something and just have it be on the outside of your skin.
1: Right. It goes
0: in and it affects the way the child thinks and the way they do relationships and the way they feel and how they manage those feelings and all those kinds of things. Um, so a complex trauma, you know, we often have thought of trauma just as post-traumatic stress disorder, which is an event-based thing, which is, can be profoundly uh, impacting in the life. Complex trauma would be child, maybe from the age of three or four, either experiencing abuse for years and years and years or experiencing abuse for a while and then leaving home and being raped and then having something else and then domestic violence. You can have complex trauma by having multiple kinds of trauma or by being marinated in one particular one as you're growing up. Mm. And given the statistics, um, number one we have lots of traumatized people sitting in our pews many of whom have never told their stories
1: yes yes
0: and whose lives and relationships and marriages and vocations and relationship with god is profoundly affected by what has happened to them and often the church is silent and not speaking to that uh, and not walking alongside which leaves them abandoned not only with a history that is untold, but with its effects uh, without help.
2: Which is the exact opposite. The church should be the place where those who have been traumatized, either in a, in a you know, real concrete clinical way, in world that we all are traumatized by, the church should be the place where we find we are welcome and able to share our stories and and as a corporate body share with one another that, you know, the areas where we've experienced trauma and especially for those who have these stories to have a space in the church where they're able to be themselves and share what's happened to them.
0: Absolutely. Uh, The church has to be a refuge for the lambs. um, Where they can feed and water and be tended and watched over and heal um, unfortunately, not only is that often absent within the church body, but abuse occurs within the church body, which I'm sure we'll get right. to eventually. Right. So it isn't yes. necessarily yes. a safe place uh, at all um, for mm-hmm. many of the lambs that are supposed to be cared for there.
1: Yes. And in a few minutes, we'll get into talking more about the church's response and, and how we can be truly the church in that, but um, I wanted to ask too, you know, as we're thinking about the effects of of trauma and abuse, and this is maybe skipping ahead a little bit, but I do want to get the hope element in there. Um, Mm -hmm. We we also long to know what kind of hope there is for healing, for healthy relationships, for relief from some of the physical and emotional and spiritual and relational symptoms and difficulties that we have as a result of trauma and abuse
0: well i would indeed want to underscore the um the fact that there is hope and the fact that in my decades of working with some people who have lived unspeakable lives um watch them <laughs> change and grow and flourish uh so that hope is there at the same time healing which can occur is very slow yes And healing hurts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you've ever broken a bone or something, you know that the bone mending hurts. So when you break it, it hurts and you want it fixed so you don't feel pain and they fix it and it still hurts. Yeah. (laughs) And so that hurt is part of it. And so the work has to be carefully titrated so that it doesn't overwhelm, which is one of the main characteristics of a traumatic experience you know the the person Mm -hmm. is overwhelmed by what is happening and so healing has to be done in little bits so that overwhelming is not repeated and so um they experience uh, safety in that relationship and do not feel shame over the fact that it is slow and hard and still hurts
1: yeah yeah, and that's a good message because um, it helps set expectations for what the experience is going to be and what can be done.
0: Well, and I think sometimes in the church, frankly, sometimes because we want to feel better ourselves about somebody else's suffering, we sort of hurl Bible verses at people like a spear right? <laughs> as if somehow that's going to heal them from terrible atrocities that they experienced over years as a child. And in fact, what it does is further discourage them and you'll hope less.
1: Well, I think sometimes we, the pain for us just even watching someone else experiencing that pain feels so unbearable that we don't want to uh, sit with them in it and, and feel any measure of that pain ourselves. And so we just want to rush them along.
0: Yes, yes. But sitting with them in it is incarnational and it is what we're called yes. to. And will it cost us? Yes, it cost our incarnate Lord deeply, but yes. it is also the road of healing.
2: Amen. And I think if you could speak to it briefly, you know, I, in my experience in ministry, I've often seen people make the the um, optimistic but naive assumption that when they become Christians, you know, the old is gone, the the new has come, right? And that's you know Second Corinthians five seventeen, a new creation. And we claim that verse. Absolutely. Amen. The Holy Spirit. Now, you know, you are cleansed and you are a new, but they, uh, the everything that happened to me in the past is gone. It's dead and no longer influences me. And I think they can make a naive uh, assumption that, you know, if they've experienced abuse or trauma, rape, or anything else that, You know, they don't want, they don't realize that that is still a part of who they are today. And therefore, they can underestimate the influence that's having on them. Even, I know my wife and I, we've had podcasts where people will, for example, have very distorted views of our Heavenly Father because they've experienced abuse from their earthly Father. And they don't even realize that's happening. Yes. And so. There's so many ways that we, we can carry our trauma into our Christian life without even realizing. So could you just share a little bit about encouraging someone who's really wrestling with, well, I, I was traumatized and I'm a believer now, what, you know, what part of that is influencing me? And Is it wrong that, that I have these things going on when I'm a, I'm a believer now?
0: Well, uh, uh, first, when we come to Christ, um, it's not magic. <laughs> We want to make it magic,
1: right it, right
0: just it, even without trauma in your life, the work and walk of learning and growing to become more christ like less over the years Amen. and if we struggle with um a quick mouth that's harsh with people, it's not like you wake up the next day and that's gone, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you do have the power of the spirit in you to teach you and change you, but God works in time. He put us in time. He works in time. Yeah. And so there aren't quick fixes for anything. And then when, when you have something like trauma or perpetual atrocities throughout childhood, that's a whole different thing than having a quick mouth because you get impatient with people. Right. And so that takes a long time. Um, Let let me tell you just a brief story about someone that I saw many years ago who, in terms of your example, Jonathan, who was abused by her earthly father and had no grasp of who God was because she'd not seen it in the flesh, really. And Mm. she began doing her work with me and she had stayed away from church for a long time. And after a couple of years with me, she made the decision to go back to church, which actually surprised me. And so she would go on Sunday mornings And she would get there late and sit in the back row and leave early because she was afraid. And she would listen. And it turned out that there was a man and his wife and their two daughters who sat in the row in front of them every Sunday. She never spoke to them. She didn't know who they were. But she watched that man like a hawk. Mm -hmm. She watched him with his wife. She watched him with his little girls. She watched him when the little girls were naughty. And after about six months, she came to me one day and she said, I have kept this man under a microscope. I have never seen him do anything that made me flinch with his wife or his daughters. He has been kind and gentle and patient with them. And now I know something of what you mean when you tell me about God as my father. Oh, gosh. Wow. He never knew. Right? She didn't tell him. He'll find out someday,
1: but, yeah. <laughs> but
0: yeah. his faithfulness every Sunday with those three females changed mm-hmm. what she thought and could rest in, in terms of her heavenly father.
2: Yeah, well, And my we wife and I can here. share very similar stories. I mean, we both came from, from uh, unbelieving homes. And my wife, she'll share it in a minute, came from an abusive background and for both of us, you know, our, our, our horizons of what was even possible as a human being were completely rewritten just by interacting with believers mm. and seeing how they were interacting with one another and their families. It was, it was truly um, that, that correlating with scripture was what, you know, for both of us, um, changed our whole idea of what you could do as a husband or a wife or as a, as a parent.
0: Yes, it does, erratically, and often the people who affect that change don't know that they're doing it.
2: Right, they're just being themselves. They're just being believers in church or whatever.
0: Yes, and it, it goes back to the point we were talking about earlier about church being a refuge. That's part of it. It's not you know, wagging your finger and instructing somebody. It's right. living it in the flesh. Um, Amy Carmichael was a missionary forever ago in India with... Mm-hmm. Uh, rescuing little girls from being trafficked, basically, into the Hindu temples. She was talking with some Indian women at one time about God and who he was and his love for them. And one of the women said, this is not an exact quote, but said something of, um, if what you say is true, we must see it lived.
1: Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's how humans are. We need to see it lived. We we learn all the wrong things by seeing it lived. <laughs> Oh yeah, but we learn the true and good things the same way, and Jesus demonstrated that when the Word was made
1: flesh. Yes, exactly, exactly. What a wonderful, what a wonderful point. Um, And that leads well into uh, the next point. Um, You know, as we think about people coming from background of trauma or abuse. And getting married, having children, building up their own new family, creating um, something new in their family—that's um, something that we have experienced. Is it, it's an incredible amount of work for anyone, but when you come from that place where you've learned all the experientially all the wrong uh, messages as a child, and you've had to relearn them, and you're trying to uh, build something very different from what you learned as a child with your uh, spouse and your children. Um, it's something that's an incredible privilege and a, a, a very meaningful life work. And it's also something that's very, very hard. And so, you know, as, as we think about people who are trying to do that, trying to build up a new family after a background of abuse, um, what, are, what are some of the things that people can cling to? What sort of resources and hope do they have as they enter into marriage and parenting themselves?
0: Well, you're, you're absolutely correct when you say it's, you know, an incredible amount of work uh, and requires a high consciousness of things that you do automatically only because it's what you knew. Um, And we as human beings are not typically highly conscious of how we're reacting, whether we've been abused or not. We're more aware of how other people are treating us. Right. So you, you end up sort of putting yourself under a microscope and, uh, it's very easy to feel hopeless about the change. But on the one, but the other hand is this, and that is that there's been a lot of research um, originally came out of work with um, Holocaust victims that that trauma is generational. Mm -hmm. So what they found was that children growing up under those who'd been in the Nazi camps had trauma. They weren't there, but from living with the parent, they had the trauma. And then they found out that the third generation had it. And so yeah. they began to understand how it can be passed down simply by watching a parent, you know, mm-hmm. scream because something reminded her of something and the child inherits that kind of uh, inconsistency. You never know what's going to happen, all those kinds of yeah. things. And so they're afraid. But the the other thing is that we pass down what we give them and as you work to change things, you, you raise children who, yes, have parents who struggle with their history, but they also have parents who are nothing like the ones their parents had. And I often will tell my clients, it's like turning an ocean liner. You know, if you do it too fast, you'll sink it to the bottom.
1: Okay.
0: And so you, you take it and the front of that, that ship changes a direction. And so your children are co- completely facing a different direction than you did. Mm. And they may know about your history. They may know about some of your hard work and all of those things. Your children are going to have children and it will turn again. Mm. Because they will have parents who were not traumatized.
1: Right. Right.
0: And so it isn't something you do in a generation. It's something that happens over the generations, but you will raise children who will not know what it was like to be you right. by experience. They will yeah. know your reaction to it, but they will not know the abuse. That's a mm-hmm. remarkable, remarkable transformation in one generation, and then the second one even more so.
2: No, that, that, that really is. My wife and I, just the other day, I think it maybe last week, we were having a conversation in the evening talking about that very thing, how, how crazy it is to think about the fact that our kids will never know what we've had to go through and how that's a wonderful thing, but it's also really hard to wrap our minds around that our own children have no, you know, knowledge of what we know uh, in terms of our Experientially, story, you know? yeah. yeah. experientially. It's yes. just amazing to think about.
0: Yes, which is what you wanted them to grow up with. Right, yes.
2: right.
0: Exactly. It, it is a bit stunning to see that difference.
2: It yeah. truly is. And and, and, just, and just, grandchildren
0: just, will be, you know, I said to one woman years ago, who just a hideous history. but She has children who were never abused and she has Mm. grandchildren that if you spoke to them about sexual abuse, they'd say, what is that?
1: Mm. Right. Amen.
2: That's awesome. Um, I think if I can ask a follow up, you obviously you have been practicing and researching and leading in, in this field for a long time. What, what kind of outcomes would you? I know that it really varies based on how you know someone's own individual story, but what kind of outcomes have you seen, broadly speaking, for those who do recognize their the traumatized past and seek help and seek healing?
0: Well, I don't. I mean, I couldn't tell you numbers, but I can tell you that I have had the privilege and joy of watching lives transformed the trauma is not forgotten it's not like it doesn't pop up now and again right but having faced it and walked through it and dealt with the consequences and made new choices and things like that there are some incredible human beings out there who love god and are many of them doing things to help other people um Mm -hmm. In, in small ways, in big ways, whatever. Um, and some who have told their stories for the sake of other people learning and things like that. There are also people, it, it isn't just about the abuse, it's about the person and who they are. And so some people just have access to more strength or mm-hmm. more abilities or things than other people. And so sometimes there are people who come in for a while and you see them change and then they disappear. and they're not through. And then they might pop up five years later and do the next part. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there are some who refuse, and that's their choice. I mean, one of the things I emphasize with therapists all the time is, you know, abuse took away choice. You don't Mm -hmm. get to do that.
1: (laughs) Right. You It gives them that choice.
0: This is their choice. And so if somebody says, I don't want to do this work, you say, well, on one level, that makes me sad, because I, I have hope for things changing for you. On the other hand, this is your life and you mm-hmm. get to say what you do with it now and I will honor that choice.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah because abuse takes away their power and it does. Saying, I want you to feel empowered. I'm sad about this choice you're making but I am happy that you you are empowered to Yeah, to you're using the muscle you, you didn't know you had. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, so maybe that's a first step.
2: Yes, it often is. So Dr. Lambert, what are the lines that you um, wrote and that I absolutely love? And I've seen it. I think I've seen it on Twitter too. Is you say that um, God grant that we be more afraid of sin than of its exposure. Mm. And you know, sin itself—that is the great evil, not the news of it that's getting out and you know, ruining someone. Um, and that applies to all of us because none of us is spotless. But it certainly applies, of course, within the realm of the church. And um, you know, when abuse is happening within churches, organizations, too often the people who um, are in that church or especially leadership, their response is tragically often to protect the abuser and not the victim. And, um, or at least to, to prevent a quote unquote scene, you know, like to, to prevent that from getting out and ruining someone's reputation or the church or whatever. So thinking corporately as a church or school or, or extended family, how should we respond Um, I know you're on the the grace uh, board, and so obviously this is something you were very involved with through that. But uh, what are some of the pitfalls that we want to avoid, and how can we best honor God uh, and ensure that the holistic safety of the victim and take the right legal action?
0: Well, first of all, I think we need to recognize that the human being's instant response to being exposed is to hide. Adam and Eve started it, and we're still doing it. Yes. God's response is always, where are you? Hmm. The church should look like God,
1: hmm.
0: not Adam and Eve. Unfortunately, right. it's got Adams and Eves in it. <laughs>
1: right. Well, the sentence think, of Adam and Eve, so.
0: <laughs> right. So I, I, I think we have to recognize that very basic truth about all of us and about God. Uh, that, that the other thing that I say is that I believe that, that abuse victims voices to the church are a prophetic voice. Mm. They are the voice that is calling the church to look at herself and what she has allowed and uh, what she has perpetrated and look to Christ and grow and change. Uh, But, you know, prophets speak up and most of us don't like what they say.
1: (laughs) Yes. Right.
0: So um, you don't have to read too many prophets in the old Testament to realize they weren't really very welcome now. So the, I think victims experience that kind of pushback, but I think that their voice is a gift to the church. And I think God is in it calling us to look at ourselves and where we are not like him and how we are serving the work and not him. So I, th- I think that's, those are some of the foundational things. And then I think when something actually happens, the, the church needs to seek outside help. The church is not trained in dealing with rape or domestic violence or or incest or any of those things. That's not part of seminary. Right. The church is not trained in forensics. The church does not know how to interview somebody about an accusation that's criminal. Right. And so we have been very arrogant, I think, largely in order to keep things quiet and cover it up. But we're doing things we are not equipped to do and we're doing not only great damage to the victims we're doing damage to the perpetrators and to the body of christ
1: yes yes
2: Yeah, i think something that, that i've been thinking about um based on an interview i had recently with a lady who who was t- sharing her story of being in an abusive marriage and seeking help from her leadership at her church and the response that she got which was mostly to to blame her or to say well if you're a better wife then your husband would be a better husband basically just not really listening to her and taking her story seriously and it's got me thinking just how often and she shared this how often you know the church can't control when bad things happen but the church can pile on the abuse and sometimes make the abuse that much worse and it's mm-hmm. fit to respond in a gracious Christ like way to when someone brings up a story, or or you know, an event that happened that was that, that was abusive, whether it happened in the church, you know, through a church event or church ministry, or whether it just happened to a member of the church, I think there are too many stories of people who were utterly disillusioned by by the church to see when they when they saw a a a bad response to something happening um, within the church.
1: Right, they've been revictimized in a lot of ways. Yeah.
0: Yes, that happens very frequently, uh, certainly with sexual abuse, also with domestic abuse. It's also interesting to me because one of the things Jesus is very clear about us is that what comes out of us comes from our own hearts. Mm. So domestic abuse comes from the heart of the man who's abusing, not from the wife standing in front of him. Right. I mean, she may not even be a good wife, but that's still not the point.
1: Right, that's irrelevant. Right. Yeah, there's,
0: there's, I have also of- heard heard a new line lately of women going to their pastors about their husbands who are clearly addicted to pornography, watching it a couple hours a night or more whatever, oh, gosh. and have heard from several, and this is across the country, so I don't know where it's coming from, but several that the response was all men use pornography, get used to it. Mm. And the, the, I mean, first of all, that's no help for the woman. But second of all, that leaves a man in bondage. Yes. There's no concern for him. So we, we, we are not okay. We are yeah, not I, okay.
2: I, I appreciate what you said earlier. That you said you were you had deep concerns for the church. And, and, I, and I shared those as well. I think that one of the things, Dr. Lambert, that I've always really loved about you as I've seen you in your speaking, your writing is... I think you speak honestly about, you know, there's that phrase speaking truth to power, which maybe is, a, I don't know where that came from, but you know, I think you emphasize a lot being honest because we have an honest God who is honest and who is truthful. And yet um, so often I think what I see happening in the church is um, out of a concern to protect the powerful and and power within the church. A lot of times I would say that the way um, that, um, things are dealt with within the church are much more worldly or even satanic than they are Christ-like in terms of, of these kinds of things.
0: Yes, I would absolutely agree. Power has been grossly misunderstood and misused. I've just spent the last close to two years writing a book on power that'll be out this fall. So, oh, wow. <laughs>
2: I, oh my goodness, I can't wait. That's something I've thought a lot about. Can I ask you, do you have a title for the book or anything like, yes, like that? Yes,
0: it, it, it's with Brazos and it's called Redeeming Power. Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church.
1: Wow, that will wow. be a really great That's
2: thing. I have thought a lot about that topic, so I'm going to buy that as soon as it's out.
0: It is, unfortunately, quite relevant.
2: It is. Yeah. It, it absolutely is. Um, because I think that so much of what we're talking about does relate very closely to how power, to the difference between the way uh, you know, Satan and the mm-hmm. world thinks of power and authority and the way that, that God uses and models power and authority so different.
1: Yes, wildly different. Mm, Yeah. Well, one of the things you've said repeatedly is um, that trauma and people who've been traumatized, that's a mission field the church needs to pursue. Mm. And that that pertains to many places and people around the world and um, right in our backyards, you know, for reasons of natural disasters, abuse, war, trafficking, and slavery, and and so on. Um, And in a lot of ways, this global reality is too big to wrap our minds around and so i think as a call to action for the big c church this is a really essential thing as we think about individual christians or our local church what can this look like what concrete things can we do to enter into this mission field that the church has has before it
0: well i I would start by saying that the word trauma literally means wound Mm -hmm. so we're talking about the wounded being a mission field and they sit in our pews not just outside our doors right so i i think i think the first thing i would encourage if there's a group of people so for example in a church the first thing i would encourage them to do is begin to pray you know where are the wounded in our midst that we are ignoring and the ones outside our doors that you would call us to minister to and as some ideas come forward or some goals or particular things to do, um, I, I would encourage those people to start to read about trauma. They need to educate themselves or they'll hurt people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hurting wounded people is a not good outcome.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So, you know, there are several books that um, in some churches, there have been small groups that have done this and, you know, they read four or five, six books. So they have some understanding not only of trauma in general, but of particular kinds, whether it's sexual abuse or domestic abuse or whatever. And then I encourage people to start small. You know, if, if there's a, a church in an inner city near you that has, especially now you think about it, but that has people in it that don't have enough food, they have trauma in their lives, but you can't start with the trauma. You have to build a relationship. Mm-hmm. And you do that by helping them in more concrete ways. And then you begin to see the trauma and invite them into places of healing and affirm them and hear their stories. And if you're going to do that kind of ministry as a church, you need somebody out, not necessarily outside the church, but somebody who does the work perhaps on a more professional level who can oversee it and Mm. advise um, because people see it as a mission field and ride in on a white horse and think grand things are going to happen and then they don't. And then people (laughs) get paid.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: I think anyone who's in any kind of, um, profession that, you know, ministry counseling, what you just said is very, very true that, you know, as you're called in to, to walk with people and through their woundedness and their trauma and to be there for them, we, we are not God. We are finite. We have limits. And I'll, I'll, a lot of times what I see with those who have a deep burden to care for others is they forget that they have limits themselves and that it is actually detrimental not only to your own health, but to your desire to, to help others if you don't live within a certain amount of your own your own weakness and, and acknowledge that and acknowledge that you need space, you need you need to take care of yourself if you're going to love others well. Um, yes,
1: absolutely.
0: They, you'll either ride uh, in on a white horse and hurt people, or you'll right. get so overwhelmed you'll damage yourself.
2: Right, that sort of he- he- hero model where I'm the hero slaying the dragon mm-hmm. um, is um, is very it's it's very self righteous. The irony of all that is people don't realize that. That's actually much more about you than it is about the people. I yes. Mean, it's a sad thing.
0: Yes. You're, um, fe- you're feeding off the traumatized, which is what they have known their whole lives. <laughs> yeah.
2: Gosh. that's. Uh, I mean, we, we could have a whole conversation just on that dynamic because how often does the church operate that way? Yes. Or do people operate that way? Yes.
0: Um,
2: and that's just the decept- The deceptiveness of sin is even in thinking we're helping others, we're actually doing it for ourselves. And um using their trauma to actually, as you said, defeat ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: Um, well, Dr. Limberg, you, you are are so uh, brilliant and your, your writings and your ministry is, is phenomenal. I do want to ask a very practical question. Um, Cause I, I get asked this all the time by churches and by, by people, which is, you know um, how, how to find a good counselor. Um, what, Aside from just going on the web and looking, but, you know, when you sit down with a counselor, can you just provide really quick one or two things? If someone says, I I do, I have trauma or I need to find a counselor in that first appointment. Do you have any guidance on what kind of questions or how they can assess whether this is someone they they should pursue a counseling relationship with?
0: Well, one of the things that I tell people is, well, you know, when you're going to call for somebody to see them for counseling, you're in a hard place. You don't call them because you're happy. Right, right. And that means you're vulnerable and you, you probably desperately want help. But I, I encourage people and, you know, they can write them down so they have the nerve to do it or something. But even on a phone call or certainly in a first appointment, they need to ask questions. Um, there's safety in choosing somebody who's licensed because, that means they are governed by certain ethical guidelines and things like that. And they have to take continuing ed and all those kinds of things. I also encourage them to ask, do you have experience with trauma? And it's kind of the new thing to do. And so people will say yes, even though they don't. So I say, well, can you tell me what kind of training you've gotten? What kind of um, uh mentor have you had in this? How many years have you been doing it? What kinds of trauma have you worked with? Can you give me an idea of how you would work with my type? Um, Mm. You know, you're you're exposing your vulnerable self to somebody and you have a right to know who they are as much as possible beforehand.
1: Mm. That's very helpful.
0: And, and if so, you encounter something in a counseling relationship that doesn't feel right or it fe- feels off or something and you bring it up and you don't get a good response, like a, an honoring response, you, you've not got the right person. Because one of the main things that trauma takes away is choice and voice. And so it should be a safe relationship. You should have a voice in it. So when you say, I can't talk about that anymore, they don't push. They say, okay, we'll come back to it when you're ready. And they let you have choice. Uh, because trauma takes away your power. So it's a reversal of the dynamics of trauma uh, when you interact with a good therapist.
2: Those are excellent words. Dr. Langberg, thank you so much. And for all of you out there who've been listening, I hope you've been encouraged. Um, I, I would strongly encourage you, if you're on Twitter, to follow her. She always has fantastic quotes. In fact, Dr. Langberg, you're pretty much the only reason I'm on Twitter these days. But uh, <laughs> I love all of your stuff on there. It's, it's, an, it's just wonderful. And um, also, we, we will, uh, of course, link her books, but she has extensive writings and articles and conference talks. You can find her all over the place on the Internet. Um, Dr. Lambert, thank you so much for your time today.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for the privilege.
2: All right. When you all out there who've been listening, you all take care. Have a great day and God bless. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you so much for listening to today's conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel using your preferred podcast app and join us again
2: next week. Conversations for Life is a listener supported ministry of Crosslife. Crosslife exists to empower families around the world to cultivate life in the home. For more information and additional resources, please visit our website www.crosslife.org. You can also find us on Facebook as Cross Life Resources,
1: Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, take care and God bless.